Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 118. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about fan-made works. Uh, by the time you hear this, uh, we'll probably have already done it, but we're going to be showing Raiders of the Lost Ark and 35mm, one of my favorite films, actually a touchstone movie for Secret Movie Club, as it was the first movie we ever showed. Then we did the trilogy as one of the first things we did when we got back from COVID. Every time we do Raiders, it feels like we're taking stock of where we are and then moving to the next phase or the next chapter of Secret Movie Club. And this time we're showing Raiders and... The amazing Raiders the Adaptation, which was mostly shot in the 1980s by these kids in Mississippi who basically watched Raiders, were inspired, and said, you know, hey, it's like 500 shots. If we do 10 shots a day, we'll have it done by the end of summer. Yeah, and the beauty of it was they didn't know what they didn't know. While they did end up shooting most of it across their pre-adolescence and adolescence, it did not take them one summer. It took them about six years. Uh, I remember they used to say that it was shot in 1989. So it was like seven years that they shot most of it. They never shot the very famous uh, fist fight underneath the Nazi plane with Marion in the cockpit because they just didn't have access to a plane. And that was like a bridge too far for them. Even though they did everything else, they had a truck, they lit a basement on fire. But finally, they kickstarted it. And in 2014, when they were all adults, they finally finished it. And we're showing that at Raiders the Adaptation with the plane sequence and everything. And the director, Eric Zala, is coming from Mississippi uh, to speak. And it's really become an inspiration for filmmakers, almost uh, like a metaphor for what filmmaking is, which is in a weird way, you can't know what you don't know. Because movie making, great movie making is doing the impossible. And the interesting thing is once people know what you can and can't do in filmmaking, they paradoxically cease to make great works. That's not always true, of course. That's not always true. James Cameron, Akira Kurosawa, Steven Spielberg, uh, Peter Jackson, you, you know, people who really know the Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, people who really know their craft definitely make the masterworks, but it kind of helps not to know and then to have crazy ambition. But we're going to be talking about that and just fan-made works in general and what that sort of means about cinema, that conversation between the movie maker and the fan. Who is with us today? Hey, what's up? It's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America! This is another day in a uh, place called Paradise Alley, man. Too close to paradise. <laughs> Have people ever called Hollywood that? No. Probably Stallone that he sang it. It was f***ing beautiful. I loved it. Oh, man. Paradise Alley, the Stallone movie you held up for the photos, a musical? No, no, it's, it's, uh, no, it's not a musical. He just sings in it. That's for the opening title. Then that's a musical. Like Clint Eastwood and Honky Tonk Man. It's not really a musical, but he sings. If someone sings, it's a musical. No. Nah. No, that's a musical. No, nah, it's not a musical. It's, there's no singing. Maybe it's... Honky Tonk Man is a musical. Uh, is there singing? There's a musical. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Name a movie but... where someone sings and it's not a musical. See, impossible. Par Paradise Alley. He just sings the opening credit song. Well, wait, That's Daniel. It. Wait, I got Daniel. What about when like Pippin sings in Return of the King? Is Return of the yeah, King? Yeah, Return a of the King is a musical. Musical. Oh, okay. All right. Well, there you go. So already we have a side debate going uh, from our main thing. Okay. As always, you can go to secretmovieclub.com to find out everything we're doing. Uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Thanks to Daniel and Josh Oakley. Our response time is pretty immediate now. And that's all because of them. It has nothing to do with them. They are just killing it. So we do respond to you. And then you can get tickets at eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. And uh, there you go. I think... It's probably fair to say that fan-made works 
based on cinema probably have been with us from the beginning of cinema. I don't think that this is a phenomenon that you could say, well, starting with Star Wars in 1977. And the reason that I say that is because although I'm not versed at all in cinema history as a critical studies cinema historian would be, so we're just four people talking about our love of movies. I have from time to time seen the old photo play magazines and fan celebrity magazines that existed in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And I think there were short stories in those. There were fictional sort of, oh, if I met Rudolph Valentino or, you know, from the very beginning, I think people realized that one of the things that was really important to respect and pay attention to was how the audience would create their own mythologies, their own narratives, their own stories from works that inspired them. And I think to this day, that's a really important thing to be paying attention to. I mean, in our day and age now, you see that a lot in YouTube or TikTok, or you know, you'll see somebody recreate a scene or take a character or re-edit a movie. Or, you know, if you want to go to the dark side, there's also something known as slash fiction which I actually had to study in college, if you can believe it or not, which leads me to wonder, like, what was I paying for exactly? Although I'm glad (laughs) that I did that in that course. But I did a course on pop culture and something I didn't know, which just shows you how naive I was, was the teacher was, well, we all know about slash fiction. I was like, what? And he was like, well, you know, where you write about Hermione and Harry Potter and Ron having nasty sex. And then uh, that's for people (laughs) who was like, what? He was like, oh, it's all over the place. And then he was talking about how there was Star Trek slash fiction back in the 60s and 70s. Like people would write about Spock being like, well, I've never felt this way before. But, and I was like, whoa. It's so gross. Can you link that? I would love everybody to talk about a fan made work that you think is interesting to this conversation. I actually saw one way, 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 way before this. And it's on my alley, believe it or not. It's called Predator. Dark Ages. It was part of some tri-film international thing, like like a short, like fan-made film festival. And these dudes just made a part of the movie where he's in the Dark Ages, in the medieval times. And same concept. They literally made a full-on Predator suit, which is incredible. I highly recommend watching it. It is super badass and like pretty good. And I kind of wish uh, that concept would have been for the new part of the movie, but this one, this one looks good. I think you bring up a point that interestingly sometimes, I think the fans have better ideas than the ideas that eventually get greenlit by committee. Predator in the Middle Ages, I mean, it would require a good script, a good director, but like Predator in the Middle Ages, I'm listening. Like you told me that, that's all you said? Predator in the Middle, I'm like, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. As an aside, that's kind of happening now too with uh, the new Prey movie. Yeah, they are, there's a new one. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's like Predator versus Native Americans. There's an English version and then there's a version in the original indigenous language. The director cast uh, all indigenous actors and had them, I don't know if they did two takes or if it's just that one's a dub and one's not, but it's, it's, it's gonna be very interesting. That's dope. I want to show the indigenous language one. Speaking of fans having good ideas, I was going to talk about something. It's not a movie, but it's something else. Of course, I'm talking about... Um, What's happening? I was talking about Sonic the Hedgehog for a second. A couple of years ago, probably the best Sonic game to come out since the 90s is a game called Sonic Mania, which was actually made 
the main developer behind that was a guy who started off making fan games for Sonic. And then Sega reached out and was like, hey, make the games for us now. I think this has happened a few times with video game stuff. It's really interesting because you're you're right. Sonic Mania is great, and there's been very few great Sonic games in the time span that it came out during. What you just said, Connor, is I think I've heard that a few times. Maybe someone here can speak to it where someone made a YouTube thing or this or that, and then the studios just said, hey, now do it for us at a bigger level. It's smart, especially if those fan works get like positive reception. I know that the Portal sequel, I think even the original game, were concepts that students were making and the company that made ended up making Portal, Valve, loved them so much, they just hired the kids out of college to bring their ideas over and collaborate. So then it became like this indie fan-made thing, then got to become part of a much bigger beast, but still got to respect the people who created it by bringing them on board to it. Another thing, whenever I think about fan stuff, there is such an enormous amount of Star Trek fan film and fan show content. That part being kind of the wildest thing. One of these shows, I'm pretty sure my old teacher, DC Fontana, Dorothy, who's passed away now, she actually wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation. She wrote the pilot for Star Trek The Next Generation. She was like Whoa. a writer on the original show. Uh, and then she would later on go and she wrote an episode for Star Trek New Voyages, which was a fan-made series. In certain areas, especially in the more like nerdy areas of pop culture, there's a lot, a lot of crossover there. Now it looks like we may not see it, but you never know. There's the famous Tarantino pen Star Trek script, which isn't really, you can't really call it fan fiction because he was really considering making it. I'm sure he got paid buku bucks by Paramount to write it. But I think if it never gets made, it's interesting to me because you would see, uh, clearly Tarantino is hugely influenced by 60s and 70s pop culture, Star Trek being one of the juggernauts of that era. Writing the script must have been a dream for him. So I have to imagine that it reads a little like a fanboy, this is what I'm going to do with this thing. And you know that Tarantino would somehow work pop culture into it, even though I'm sure he'd be totally respectful of the mythos and the what have you. So I'm very curious to see if we'll ever read that script. It, it was interesting to hear about it because I, I heard that it was supposed to be R-rated, which I just don't really know why you would make an R-rated Star Trek. They're doing that now because, uh, I don't know, Star Trek is meaningless now. As an IP, <laughs> it's been diluted beyond recognition. But it does seem weird to me. The idea of an R-rated Star Trek seems like inappropriate almost, where I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want to, I don't want to hear Captain Kirk say the F word. No, thank you. Well, it's, it's such a weird thing because in the realm of like a fan made space, like I can see that as like a 10 minute bit that could be effective or really funny. But sometimes I feel like then the turnarounds are like, oh, people want to see that. And you're like, no, 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 we, we saw that. That was the bit. Part of me also thinks Tarantino's smart and savvy enough to know to not do that. So it was weird when I heard he was making it and it was rated R. I was like, really? Maybe it's just the content of things. I think that would be more interesting. The other interesting thing is when American directors, prior to Kerry Fukunawa, I believe no American director had ever directed a Bond because there was an unspoken 
rule that began with Cubby Broccoli and, and Harry Saltzman that it should be British journeyman directors because it, no one would understand the idiom like a, which is fair, you know, about MI5 and being a Brit and being a British spy. And so, you know, the famously Steven Spielberg called Cubby Broccoli after 1941, you know, it was rough. And he was like, look, I want to do the next Bond. And Cubby Broccoli was like, no. And then uh, Quentin Tarantino called Cubby Broccoli and said, look, I want to do the next Bond in the 90s. And Cubby Broccoli was like, and I think at that point, maybe Cubby Broccoli had passed. But his daughter, who now owns the, the IP, Barbara Broccoli and her husband, Michael Wilson, were like, no. And it was only Kerry Fukunawa who, you know, he had done True Detective and Sin Nombre and a lot of movies that are like incredible. I think he is the first American director to have done a Bond. And I love Bond. Like, I could see myself, because I've had a Bond idea since I was 22, and I even have the title. It's called Weapon of Choice, and the middle part of it happens in L.A. Like, I'd even found a way to, like, bring in my autobiographical love of my city into it, but it ends up in Brazil. I'll tell you, it starts in Scotland, comes to L.A., ends up in Brazil. I don't have as many details for mine, but I have one that involves... It involves Texas. It also involves, <laughs> but it involves oil fields. Nice. I want to do, I think a Bond action chase on the one out here in California would be sick. And then it ends in Japan. See, they're going to steal this idea. But one of my center, the midpoint action sequence is, you know, the 110 and the 105. Do you know that incredible over it? Like there's a whole action sequence that happens right there that I had. Sick. And uh, oh yeah, it would be sick, homie. Let's go pitch him. You should call uh, Roger Corman. He'll probably finance it. That's not like an American financial pictures movie. Dude, Roger Corman is ninety-five with his wife chilling. Why so would he, why would he finance a Bond movie? Um, yeah, he's still producing. And then the last thing I was gonna bring up, Jenny Nicholson's newest YouTube video, which will be a couple months old by the time this comes out, is definitely worth watching and definitely falls under this. It's about a Canadian church that every Easter they do a uh, pop culture themed Easter pageant based off of some sort of uh, current or semi-current IP. This is a doc, did you say? Well, Jenny Nicholson is a YouTuber, so she does like video essays. And so it's like a video essay where she covers all of these pageants that this church has uploaded. And it'll be like the Dark Knight, except <laughs> at the end, Batman gets crucified on the bat signal. <laughs> Oh, I've, I've seen them. They're incredible. They're also all jukebox musicals with music seemingly chosen at random. There's like a 2016 Indiana Jones one where one of the Nazis sings Numa Numa. And they'll shift lyrics, too, to like fit like Christian values. Yeah, sometimes they'll shift lyrics. Sometimes they won't shift lyrics, and they'll just sing the song normal. Sometimes they'll do other weird little things, like they did a Toy Story one where Mr. Potato Head was also Trump. God. It's like hyper cringe, so just buckle up. There were times when I was watching that where I was like, oh no, Jenny, why are you, why are you making me watch this? I haven't done this in a few years, and I need to because I want to go with my kids, but I, um, every, you know, people know that I'm a Catholic and I go to church every Sunday. I think people know that. But I try every year to go to all houses of worship including like atheist like forums and stuff to just make sure that I don't get dogmatic because I think it's all the same thing and I respect everyone's point of view and I never want to become the like dogmatic person. I remember one year I, I went to 
a Hindu temple. I went to a mosque here in LA, which was incredible. I went to synagogue, which I go a bit because I'm Jewish as well, and uh, blah, 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 Episcopalian church. I went to a black Methodist church, and, and I found myself in a four-square church because I was volunteering at the time, and the person I was volunteering with was uh, Foursquare, which is Ellie Semple McPherson. And if you guys don't know this, the church is right next to Echo Park Lake. So if you're at Echo Park Lake, that big building on the north of Echo Park Lake, that's a four-square church. So I went in, and I remember, Connor, to your point about Jenny Nicholson, I'd never been in one of the, like a mega church. I realized, and they opened it up with, they had these big TV monitors and they went to the pastor's wife and she was in like hot running gear and she was getting ready for the LA marathon. And she's like, what up y'all? I'm getting ready to run, run for Jesus. Everyone was going crazy. And it was sincere. I'm not trying to make fun, but I'm for a Catholic who kneels and bows and chants with these, I was like, what is going on? And then a rock band came out and did some kind of like Coldplay thing and everybody got up and it was like a rock concert and they were throwing glitter in the air and they were like, my God is an awesome God. And I was like, what? And all white people, by the way, all white people. I was trying to get into it for what it was and I was like, this not me, this is not me. <laughs> but I was there. There's a King of the Hill quote where Hank Hill says, uh, you're not making church better, you're making rock worse. <laughs> But I, I, I just want to follow up by saying, because I say that and I always feel like I don't tell the story right. They welcomed me in. I was really glad that these churches were open churches. I respect the hell of it. You can worship however you want. That's American. Do whatever. We got freedom of religion. It was just new to me. And I just, I want to make sure I'm not being, I'm not making fun of something because you could easily make fun of Catholic mass easily. So it was just something I never experienced. Funny by coincidence, loop things back. The director of that new Prey movie, his name is Dan Trachtenberg. He directed uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. But before that, he got his notoriety from directing a fan film of Portal, the video game, that took off. And so that sort of skyrocketed him into that world, which is interesting. Maybe predictably, I think because it was so like important to me as a kid, Star Wars fan film stuff is obviously wild. And there were some really interesting projects. But the two things that really stuck out to me is there's a project that's happened called Star Wars Uncut. And it was back in, I think it was in college when it was happening. But essentially, someone broke down A New Hope into 473 15-second segments. And then people could claim those segments and make them however they wanted to. Whatever style, whatever genre that they wanted to. And then it was cut together into like a one, like a feature film. But every 15 seconds, it would shift so it'd be animation one second, a horror film the next second. And I to totally derail, but this concept's been done a few times now. Was that the first time? I don't know. With Shrek, they did it, I remember, a few years ago. And they've done it with RoboCop. And Flashdance. This was something I was going to talk about, yeah. Well, to, to some degree, it's like an interesting concept of parody. But also some of them are like, there's some segments that are incredibly well made and sort of just different people's interpretation with the art when they're trying to take something back from it and recreate, I think, so interesting. I mean, growing up stuff like there was this thing called Ryan versus Dorkman that was like these two nerdy dudes who were on a forum, like a message board for Star Wars, and they became friends and met up to do this lightsaber choreography competition. And it's so goofy, but it's also so completely genuine. And they like kind of honed their filmmaking style to it. And they did like sequels in the years to come. It's, you know, a fun video. And then it becomes like a very well-made video. And by the end of it, they're like clearly very skilled visual artists and sort of have honed their craft in making this. I, you know, weirdly, when you make something fan-made, you're also making something. And so weirdly, you're going to like get better at whatever you're doing because you're doing it. There's a fanfic realm. 
you still have to know how to write. You still have to know how to make a movie to do this. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. Like I, I grew up, my initial film school was DVD special features. So I would make Star Wars things because I understood Star Wars as a concept. So it translated into a thing that was in my imagination to then try and make as a film. And I think even the concept of fan-made stuff has been applied to like George Lucas. People consider like the special editions of Star Wars fan edits that George Lucas wants because it's the things he wants to change in this thing. But they already exist to everyone else as this other thing. So he's made his version, the special editions, and continues to tweak them. And a lot of people consider that the fan edits that George Lucas made. There's this version that is the untouched version, but he also can have his fun and do whatever he wants with it because that's his version. I prefer that way of looking at it. I prefer looking at what George Lucas has done post the original releases as his fan version. Well, because if you look at it that way, it, it makes it kind of interesting because you're like, oh, there's these things and that- more palatable. As he was someone so obsessed with technology, he sees these new things and wants to utilize them to correct things he thinks are flawed or that he couldn't do right. Things that I think people that grew up with the original holds nostalgically or, you know, they're important to them for different reasons. Or if you're the artists that worked on the original ones are important because they were fundamental jumps at the time. But I think it is interesting that even in that regard, like the person who created it is still tweaking in a realm that people consider fan-made. So I think that whole concept's fascinating. The one work that I've seen that really, to me, this thing that, that has become a inspiration to filmmakers who are making feature films is Raiders, the adaptation made by these teenagers. At the time, I think they started, they might have been 13, 14. And the reason is, when you watch it, a lot of questions are raised. For people who don't know this, it was directed by Eric Zala. It starred his friend. They had another friend who was sort of the effects guy and the co-writer and doing the sound. And then they would bring all their like girlfriends, not even girlfriends, maybe girls they like, they cast them as Marion or whatever. They get their friends and they would just shoot it. And their solutions, watching the movie, you engage with it differently than the original Raiders, of course, because what it becomes is, how are they going to do this? Like, what is their solution going to be for this scene? And so the funny thing is the monkey who eventually dies from the bad dates is someone's beagle. So they just have this beagle <laughs> dog that rides on people's shoulders and stuff. And the Then they have a shot when it's the monkey dead, bad dates. They just film the dog sleeping. So they're just like bad dates. And you just see the dog like asleep on the ground. And you're like, that's dope. And then, you know, you're like Marion's bar. What are they going to do? And you think... I don't know why you think this, but you're like, oh, it'll be a kid. No, they lit a basement on fire. And so you sit there and you're like, holy, no. And then you see this 14-year-old leap through fire and you can tell he's terrified. But then in your head, you have this whole meta conversation of, I guess they were like, we got to get the shot, so do it. But they weren't thinking about, and you're 14 at the time and no one's like, that's a... Uh, <laughs> It's against the law, and not even a stuntman would do that. They're just like, we got to get the shot. And then <laughs> when they get to the desert chase sequence, I think they found this circular road. You can tell they're just kind of going around and around on this road. But they have a legit Jeep truck, and they're hanging off of it and stuff. And I think maybe they're going 15 miles an hour. But I want to hang off a car at 15 miles an hour and go <laughs> underneath it. You're like, man, they just did it. Yes, there's a lot of problematic things here about the stunts and where were the adults and what does it say about latchkey kids in the 80s? But it, it becomes a very rich, rich thing. And the other thing I was going to throw out is I actually, my friends did one of those scenes, Connor, in the RoboCop one. If you've ever seen the RoboCop one, 
they did the scene where it's at the very beginning where they introduce the ad 209 and the poor employee for the company gets shot and they did it with puppets and humans and you're like oh that's funny but then my friends dave and james cadilla you should check this out they're master movie makers they actually did if anybody remembers our palm springs ad they did that that was their ad they built a full-size ed 209 where a person had to get into it and puppet it and we were all on the set and the ed 209 came out and you just see the like skinny legs and black leotards of the person inside it you're just like whoa <laughs> before that they had worked on a flash dance which the guys who did that to your point were friends chris cantwell and i knew him from usc i was his ta and chris cantwell went on to do the amc series halt and catch fire yeah that was a great show yeah so chris cantwell became a creator on that and i think he leapt kind of Lonely Island style, because he did this thing, and then he did a Flashdance scene where Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn fight the dudes at the end, if you remember that scene in Flashdance. Only in their version, it was full-on gore. So a dude's head comes off, and a dude gets impaled on. And so it's interesting, too, that this fan stuff legitimately then leaps people into the next level. While we were talking, I, I forgot about Red versus Blue, which was um, oh yeah in the, in the 2000s which was Machinima series. Machinima is like a form of filmmaking animation where you use a video game as your animation um, and then edit it with like voices. And Rooster Teeth created Red vs. Blue in Halo and that became a big thing to the point now Rooster Teeth is making their own shows like Ruby and they've become their own entity, which I'm pretty sure themselves have fan made stuff. You see those things in like games a lot in other places, too, with um, like role playing games, because role playing games are interesting because when you're broadcasting it and creating it into a show, it is this kind of combination. And especially if you're if you're using the rules and you're writing your own scenarios, it's kind of fanish, kind of not. But there's just a lot of RPG play stuff online that's those people have now become people who write actual RPG stuff. That thought process applies too to something like Community, the show Community, which so many of its cruxes around its character arcs and story arcs are built as like fan-made things. You have a character who's kind of a big pop culture guy and they utilize him as a character to make these episodes that are completely contained as homages to things. But it works because it's character focused. It's like someone who understands how like fandom and storytelling can combine and coexist versus fan service to a degree in some stuff where it's just there so that it it's winking it's rewarding you for being a fan and so if you can combine those two where it is both are rewarded for that but it also is coherent and makes sense to the characters within the thing i think that's like the ultimate combination there's also fan edits yeah oh my gosh i don't the anime fan edit community which friends of mine in high school were super into is wild people make new dubs they change like the scripts to have new stories utilizing the footage sort of like it was like this weird thing of people learning how to like be their own filmmakers by just utilizing other people's stuff and making it their own it's kind of cool i was gonna i was gonna just uh, there is a fan edit version of a heaven's gate where it's not three hours it's shortened to an hour and 40. And the person that edited was none other than Steven Soderbergh. He does that all the time. Oh yeah, he has a Raiders cut. The black and white one, which is very cool. I think he has an AI cut. And like <laughs> Topher Grace has made like a Hobbit cut that made the Hobbit movies, or maybe a Star Wars cut too, that made the 
the prequel is like a 90 minute movie instead or something or maybe it's like a two-hour movie like he makes it just one cohesive story yeah you should check out the heaven's gate butcher cut that's what it's called did you see it edwin i did see it i actually liked it i think it plays a lot better would it be would you watch that before after you've seen the original i assume yeah you should see the, the full length and then watch the shorter version because it plays out very differently. Does he trim down the college sequence at the beginning? Yeah, it's actually a flashback sequence, actually, yeah. believe it or not. <laughs> and the opening shot is, is of Christopher Walken, who, who kills the farmer dude. And that's how the movie starts off. And it cuts to Chris Christopherson coming into town in the train. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Edwin, what do you think about stuff like Francis Ford Coppola coming back and like re-editing his things? Sometimes, like, we get a weird thing where, like, when something streams and that's the only version available or, like, the Blade Runner cuts, like, do you have an opinion on editors who return to their stuff to do new versions? Is that, like, sort of a fan edit to you? Not really. Depends if it's good or not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Copa, The Godfather 3, Coda... So it's all right. What about? I know you had opinions on the apocalypse. Now it's it's cuts. He didn't, he didn't change anything. He just took out one scene, and that's it. More like cope, Allah. <laughs> Edwin, I'm glad you brought up fan edits because that's always on my mind. The problem, of course, is that if you're a filmmaker yourself, it's just karmically not right to take someone else's work and re-edit it and try to do anything other than, hey, I did this for myself because that's just not karmically cool. But there are plenty of, it's always weird when you see a movie and you're like, man, this is a great movie. I don't know why they made these choices. If they had just taken this out, I think it would play better. And it is interesting to test that theory and say, okay, well on my own, I'm gonna digitize it, take those out, which is I think what Soderbergh does. And does it actually play better? All right, guys, pop culture, final thoughts. Who wants to go first? Well, uh, just because it kind of leads in from this is I saw with Casey and Brian and Scott the 4K restoration of the only Lynch movie I hadn't seen, which is Inland Empire. And that's a movie that I, I almost wish was shorter because the stuff that is there that works for me, which is most of it, is like so good. But it gets like the back half kind of slogs, I think. Would you keep the rabbits in or no? Oh, I'd keep the rabbits in. Absolutely. The rabbits are like a key. I love the rabbit stuff. It's more so that once the, this is going to be, sounds so meaningless to people who haven't seen it. But once the like frame of the like movie within a movie stuff in the first half starts to like really dissolve, I feel like it becomes a little mushier. For me, at least, it wasn't able to sustain like a total interest because it really is like the last half of that movie becomes this kind of odyssey where the first half is kind of like accessible i would actually say honestly and pretty grounded and i think a lot of the stuff in the back half is really good but i feel like it probably is too much and it became a little bit of an endurance test what did you think of this scene on hollywood boulevard the kind of scene towards the end yeah where they're on the street and the one woman's i have a hole in my womb i loved the turn at the end of it it's interesting some of the race stuff is kind of weird i wonder if he was doing that intentionally but it's a wild scene. That's my favorite scene in the picture. The part of the movie that to me is kind of mushy is from the point where the like it really starts to go into the Odyssey realm where she like goes back to the beginning and she's like chased by Justin Thoreau. I know what you mean. I've a lot of it has slipped my memory. It's really a movie I remember parts of. That happens about halfway through. And then what you're talking about happens probably like 
10 or so before the end. And so it's, it's that like hour, hour 15 section there where there isn't really any sort of forward drive momentum. It's just him doing the dream imagery. And it's really tough to keep that momentum up for as long as he does. And I wish it had been two and a half hours. I think it would work. It would stick a little better. It's definitely worth checking out. I, despite as negative as I sound, I actually do think it might be one of my favorite of his movies, not quite top tier, just because I did find the stuff that I did like in it, I thought was so engaging. I thought the first half was so good and funny, honestly. There's some bits in the first half when Harry Dean Stanton's just like skimming them for money. The 4K restoration looked really good. I never saw the original, but Brian, you said, said it looked like, it still looks like a movie shot on mini DV, but it looks like a really crisp version of that and clear and like intentional. Or I've heard the original version looked kind of ugly and muddy in certain places. But yeah, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz or watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHala. I watch a lot of pictures, you know? Watch a lot, lot, lot of great pictures. Like, for instance, I saw Paradise Alley twice. Great picture. Loved it. Yeah! Yeah! I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I was like, okay, strong, can't direct yet, but he'll get better. After the second watch, I was like, actually, you know what? It's not bad. This is a really damn fine good movie. I actually dig it for what it is. And uh, I've been obsessed with the song that he sings in the movie, which is surprisingly catchy. I might, I might use it for one of my short films now because it's... Honestly, you can, you can use it for a title and just play that song. Paradise Alley Rules. I also watched The Killer Elite, Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, that one's not good. It's not good at all. That was not a good Peckinpah movie. I saw a Japanese disaster picture called The Bullet Train. Not to be confused with the Brad Pitt Bullet Train. This is basically about this guy who plants a bomb on a bullet train. If it goes past the speed limit, it will blow up. Japanese speed. Yeah, exactly. And this one came out in 1975. It's got uh -oh. Ken Takakura and uh -oh. Sonny Chiba, who doesn't do anything. Somebody watched Bullet Train and Road Speed. Yeah, and also probably Heat. There's an ending to that movie that's very similar to Heat. Um, speaking of fan films, I watched uh, the Disney Plus show Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> um, the Star Wars thing. Talking about that level of, well, I guess Disney trying to find a balance between new storytelling, but keeping it with known property that's more of its purpose seems to be just to be like, hey, you know this. And sort of this weird, I guess, stalemate it must put creators in when everything has to wink at what's to come. Because you sort of have a position where we know the outcome of this. We know that which characters can't die, where their results lie. I guess that's sort of the prequel problem. But how do you build stakes and character within that? And when so many of the decisions are, well, you've heard this line before. What if he says it? He's going to say it here and you're going to freaking applaud. It's a very bizarre it's a thing. It's very cool to see Ewan McGregor back. There's some cool things in it but it there's a strange thing happening in some of this franchise stuff specifically with star wars where i'm curious to see what they do because i can't imagine that this can hold people's attention the way that i think they want for the period that they want it to be held connor was talking about how star trek the ip has been diluted and that was a great choice of word i think if you drink a drink that's like great but if you dilute it with too much water it no longer tastes like the drink but people could tell you it's the drink, but you're like, oh, no, it's you've diluted it too much with water. I don't know its essence. Do you think that's the danger that Star Wars is running into? Yeah, I think the best thing that's going to happen is as we move out of sort of the known timeline that they're stuck in, the movies, their timeline is all between two years. And I think when we get a move to where people get to do whatever they, you know, play in the universe 
where they're not so restricted by the story before and after. I think that's when it's going to get exciting. The comparison I would give without giving my actual opinions on Star Wars is if what you said just then was Star Trek. Star Wars is more like the people got the ingredients that make it the drink, the flavor that it is. And I've added so much into it that it tastes artificial and overly sweet and unrecognizable. Yeah, like there's Coca-Cola and then there's Shasta. And they're two different things. And sometimes it can be good. Like if it's a really hot day and you're thirsty. You have no other option. I feel like that's going to get me some flack. Shasta, I grew up on Shasta to be clear. But, you know, let's be honest. So last week, by the time you hear this, it'll have been quite a while ago. But we showed Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon on 35 millimeter, And... I had never seen Serpico on 35mm. I may even blog about this. Serpico is a 1973 movie directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Al Pacino, based on a true story about a cop named Frank Serpico who refused to take money. Well, all of the cops around him were on the graft, usually from gangsters running drugs and other things. It was edited by Dee Dee Allen. I had seen this movie, I think, on VHS when I was young, because I, when you get into movies, depending on when you get into movies, you get to Sidney Lumet pretty quick, and you get to 70s cinema pretty quick, because I think you watch Bonnie and Clyde, because you, you read about Bonnie and Clyde introducing the 70s, so you see Bonnie and Clyde, and if you respond to it, you either chase Dee Dee Allen, who edited that, or you you know you get to Lumet because of Network or Dog Day. Anyway, Serpico, when I saw it on the little screen, I was like, oh, what a good movie. You know, I love the editing, total 70s movie. But I thought, it kind of rambles. It's kind of long. On the big screen with an audience, you know, I don't want to overstate this. We had a lot of people there. I was really surprised. It was a great 35 millimeter print. I couldn't believe Paramount gave us like beautiful print. It was so emotional and so powerful that everybody in the audience was tearing up watching this character in an untenable position, trying to be a good cop knowing he's going to get killed by cops around him who are like, you're going to the press with this. And it's a movie they don't make anymore. That's what I'm trying to get at. Everybody's comment coming out of the movie at the intermission was they don't do that anymore. They don't allow a two hour and 15 minute movie about just a person and his relationships and his work and his moral struggle in this moment to play out the way they let it played out. But the way they let it play out in 73 was overwhelming and powerful. And I think for a savvy person today, watch that movie and do it again, figure it out, you know, in your own way now. I just want to encourage people to watch Serpico. I now have to say that Serpico is easily one of my favorite Lumet movies. I got to say Serpico, Dog Day, Network, 12 Angry Men, Verdict, before the Devil Knows You're Dead, I gotta shout that one out, his last movie. And there's still some I have to see. Friends of the City. I need, I've never seen, which I know is one of the best. Which you should though build it with Serpico because it kind of like follows up on, you know, Crooked Cops and New York City and everything. And it's shot very beautifully too. And I also need to see the Pawnbroker, the Rod Steiger movie, which a lot of people say is amazing. And he did A Long Day's Journey Into Night. And I need to see the Brando one, the fugitive kind. I've seen Murder on the Orient Express and I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. You know, it is what it is. It's probably how the novel read. It's it's like a cake. It's a confection. But anyway, thank you, everybody. You can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. You can get the tickets at Eventbrite, Secret Movie Club. Just Google that. And you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. And if you like what you're hearing, write us, comment, like, 
follow, all that good stuff. Uh, it helps us. And if you don't like what you're hearing and you're like, hey, you guys could be doing a lot better, we also want to hear that. We really do. So write us. As always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. The next episode you're going to hear is another Defend This Movie. This time, you're going to get Connor Lloyd Cruz and Daniel Ott discussing the wildly transgressive hot button movie 2021's Drive My Car, which I think may be the most genteel defend this movie. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys will just get coked up and drunk and we'll see sides of both of you we've never seen. I can't imagine though that that defend this movie is going to be anything but a profound and deep and thoughtful conversation am i wrong on that well you'll have to see um i think i think the movie i think everybody who likes the movie is a bad person so whoa gauntlet thrown <laughs> yeah and i think to not like it is to just be an admission that you're a sheep without taste whoa okay there you go those are some of the burns some of the sick burns you're gonna hear on possibly our most controversial defend this movie drive my car as always, thank you guys so much. Have a great week. Hey, Love you, family. And usual background noise, headphones, uh, bad words, etc. Yeah, Craig, watch your language. You f***er.